Thanks, Bastian. We will cling to the old rugged cross. You know, these passages I've been doing recently, there's really no good transition points. <laughs> to, I'm going to cling to the old rugged cross, to, you misogynist! There's no good transition. This is the sermon that no matter what happened, I was not going to preach this sermon on Mother's Day. It was not going to happen. I was going to move heaven and earth to make sure this did not land on Mother's Day. So it did not land on Mother's Day, but it did land on Communion Sunday. So this is going to be one of the oddest Communion Sunday sermons you have heard in your life. This, of all passages of Scripture, this is of on the top 15 that I've gotten some of the most questions about is this passage we're in in 1 Corinthians 14, 34-35. This is also one of the few passages that make liberal Christians really squirm. Some theologians, as they're studying 1 Corinthians or 1 Timothy, they, they accuse Paul of being a misogynist and claim that his sinful mindset is influencing him on the letters that he is writing. And therefore, this passage we're going to read today is actually Paul's sin, not the holy word of God. And some liberal theologians, I was actually going to get this big, huge scissors and like chomp a piece of paper in half, but then I didn't get around to it. Some, some theologians actually will rip that part of scripture out and say it is actually not inspired word of God. We can't believe it. But we as Calvary Bible Church believe that the Bible, from beginning of Genesis to the end of Revelation, is God's holy, inspired word of God. That it is inerrant, it is true, it is without error, and it is authority for our daily lives. It teaches us how to live on this earth. So even verses like 1 Corinthians chapter 14, 34 to 35, the ones we come to, we scratch our heads and say, what in the world? Is God's holy, inspired word useful for us in our daily life? Let's read those verses in 1 Corinthians 14, verses 34 to 35. Paul says, Women should remain silent in churches. They are not allowed to speak, but must be in submission, as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home, for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in church. Many people... When they read those verses, if they've read other portions of Scripture, they might think about what Paul wrote in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 11 to 12, which says, A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. Again, another one of those verses you read it and you say, Paul, come on! Most people when they're studying either the passage in 1 Corinthians or the passage in 1 Timothy, most of them look at those verses by themselves. They read them and they're stuck just on those verses and they forget what the entire context has to say. However, in Bible study, context is everything. Paul wrote a letter that is one thought from beginning to end with lots of subpoints to it. But those subpoints play into each other. Whenever we read a verse, we cannot just take the verse out and say, what does this say? We must read the verse with what's going on around it and what's going on around the time the person's writing it. 
because it's written to a specific people at a specific point in time in a specific place with a specific purpose. Context is everything. If we pull a verse out of context, we can make the Bible say whatever we want to say. The story goes was that there was a man who, in order to seek God's will for his life, wanted to base it on the Bible. And so, whenever he got to a point in his life, he was wondering, what should I do? He would open up his Bible, flip through it, slam his finger down. And whatever it said, that's what he did. One day, this man was going through a really, really hard time. His family was falling apart, lost his job. It was horrible. And he was like, what do I do? What is my next step, God? So he opens up his Bible, flips through it, slams his finger down, and finds Matthew 27, 5, which says, Judas departed, and he went and hanged himself. The man was really confused. He said, what do I do with this? I don't believe this is God's will for my life. Obviously, this is just a fluke. So he opens up his Bible again, flips through it, slams his finger down in Luke 10, 37, where Jesus said, you go and do likewise. <laughs> coincidence. Complete coincidence. So he opens up his Bible again, slams his finger down, says, surely this is God's word for me right now. John 13, 27, what you're going to do, go do it quickly. There's danger when we take words of Scripture out of context. We must read verses in the context in which is written. So before we dive to the two verses at hand of 1 Corinthians 14, verses 34 to 35, we're going to read the context around them. Paul has been calling the Corinthians uh, out of their bad worship practices. They were not a good church, which is why he wrote this letter, and which is why most of the things he writes in 1 Corinthians is rebuke rather than encouragement. He talks to them about what they're supposed to wear in worship services. He talks to them about the Lord's Supper. He talks to them about spiritual gifts in worship services. He focuses on prophecy and speaking in tongues. And then he turns to the order of a worship service in 1 Corinthians 14, 26 to 40, the immediate context of these verses. We read them last week, but I'm going to read them today. What then shall we say, brothers and sisters? When you come together, each of you has a hymn or a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Everything must be done so that the church may be built up. If anyone speaks in a tongue, two or at the most three should speak, one at a time, and someone must interpret. If there is no interpreter, the speaker should keep quiet in the church and speak to himself and to God. Two or three prophets should speak, and the others should weigh carefully what is said. And if a revelation comes to someone who is sitting down, the first speaker should stop. For you can all prophesy in turn, so that everyone may be instructed and encouraged. The spirit of prophets are subject to the control of prophets. For God is not a God of disorder, but of peace, as in all the congregations of the Lord's people. Women should remain silent in the churches. They're not allowed to speak, but must be in submission, as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home, for it's disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. Or did the word of God originate with you, or are you the only people it has reached? If anyone thinks they're a prophet or otherwise gifted by the Spirit, let them acknowledge that what I'm writing to you is the Lord's command. But if anyone ignores this, they will themselves be ignored. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, be eager to prophesy. Do not forbid speaking in tongues, but everything should be done in a fitting and orderly way. That's the greater context around this passage. 
This morning, this is the roadmap we're going to do. We're going to talk about the context, the biblical and cultural context of the passage. We're going to tear apart the actual passage, and then we're to discuss the application for today. And if you think, boy, that sounds like a lesson out of school, I'm going to try not to make it sound like that, but it will sound like that from time to time. First, before we dive into the context, will you pray with me? Father, King of kings and Lord of lords, thank you for being the God who knew that we needed to know you. And so you send your son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for our sins, that we might be reconciled to you, and that we could intimately know you just as you know us intimately. Thank you for giving us your word that we might know you beyond a shadow of a doubt, and we might know how we are to live our lives. Father, I ask today that as we study your word, that we would understand you, and we would understand your ways, and that we would seek to imitate that. Help us not to pick up the excuse of laziness or the excuse of pride to, to think we could speak against what you say. But Father, I ask you, give us the humility to see where we disobey you, where we do not live a life that reflects you, and you'd give us the guts to change. As I'm up here, Lord, I ask that I would decrease and that you would increase. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, my rock and my redeemer. Thanks, Father. Amen. The context of the passage. First, what is going on biblically in this passage? What is going on biblically? And the screen is not changing. Huh. It died. There we go. Biblically. Perfect. We're going to review what we discussed last week uh, because we all need review and some people weren't there last, here last week. So you got to know the context of the passage. So what's going on biblically in this passage? Paul discussed that God was a God of order, 1 Corinthians 14, For God is not a God of disorder, but of peace, as in all the congregations of the Lord's people. At the beginning of time, we see that God brought order into chaos when he created the world. We see that God brings order into humanity by giving them that rule not to eat a certain type of fruit. In the face of humanity's sin, he brings order through the law and the sacrificial system, and ultimately he brings order through the cross as Jesus takes our sin on himself and pays our penalty. God is a God of order. He has consistently brought order over and over and over into history. Through this order comes peace. Peace with God, as we see in Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have peace with God. We have peace with others through Jesus. In Ephesians 2, 14. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. And then in verse 17. He came and preached peace to you who are far away and peace to those who are near. Because God is a God of peace, a God of order. He shows that with his relationship with us. He shows that with our relationship with others. Our services are called to reflect that peace and order as we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 40. Everything should be done in a fitting and orderly way. Scripture teaches us that chaos tears a church down. Order builds it up. It builds peace in the community. 
In the rest of the passage, Paul lists examples of how the worship service is supposed to go and to bring that order and peace. He points to people who are speaking, talks about how many who can speak in a worship service, how to take turns so you're not talking over one another, all that sort of stuff. And then we talked about not only how we should have order in our worship services, but how we should have order in our lives. We should be seeking God personally for ourselves, studying his word for ourselves, for our own sake, and asking as we read, asking God, what do I need to repent of? What do I need to change? How does my life need to be brought into order? How does my life need to be rearranged so I can show others who you are through me, your character in me? The Corinthians were a church that only cared about themselves. They only cared about what makes me feel good, what boosts me up, how can other people serve me? How can God do I what I want him to do? How can I crawl up the social ladder? Paul, because of the order and peace of God, calls the Corinthian Christians and us to live in order and peace, to be self-sacrificing in that way so that God can shine through. I just condensed a 45-minute sermon into two minutes. I feel very proud of myself. That's the biblical context of what's going on. Let's talk about the cultural context of what's going on in this passage. At this point, I need to broaden our net from just talking about the Corinthian church to talking about the church as a whole at that time. Not just the Corinthians, but we're going to go to Antioch, we're going to go to Thessalonica, we're going to go to Rome. Because the Corinthians were not doing their church services as Paul wanted them to do. So we got to discuss the correct culture. Just to give you a picture of the Corinthian church at this time, you, I want you to say, blah, blah, blah. Thank you. And you say, thus he saith. Now say it at the same time. Ha <laughs> ha, beautiful. Chaos. Chaos. The Corinthians were chaos. Paul says, don't do chaos. Don't do it. So we're going to travel to the church in Antioch. We're going to travel to the church in Thessalonica, the church in Rome, any of them will do because they all are doing things the way Paul wants them to do, with the elements that Paul wants them to have. They might do it in a little different order, but all the elements are there. If someone came up to speak in those church services at Antioch, Thessalonica, or Rome, they would get up to speak, they would say their speech, whether it was a prepared message like I do, or spur of the moment, thus saith the Lord, God just impressed upon my spirit, they'd get up they do that prophecy, and after they spoke, whether it was that spur-of-the-moment thing or that prepared thing, they were to be examined. Paul says about this in 1 Corinthians 14, 29. He says, two or three prophets should speak, and the others should weigh carefully what is said. That phrase, weigh carefully, is literally the word evaluate or judge is the word that's going on. So the person would speak, and then people would examine him. So, pretend I have finished my message. And the person would either stay standing up or they'd sit down. I'm going to sit because I'm lazy. He'd sit down and wait expectantly. And I want you all to ask me this question. Nope, not that one. This one. Thank you. Appreciate that, but I was talking to these people. You can ask me the question again. Okay, good. So they'd question him about the content of his sermon, okay? I don't want you all to feel left out. 
you all can ask me this question. Very good. So they ask questions not just on the content, but on the result. Does it bring about the purpose according to Scripture? Does it does align with Scripture in the content and in the result. And now everyone can ask me this question. Thank you. That's the one that stings the most. Because at this time, the early church was very concerned with the accuracy of teaching. They knew that a church or an individual could very easily be swayed away from following God. So they wanted to make sure the content and the application of a message was in keeping with the word of God. And they would make very sure to tear that apart during the church service. But they also wanted to make sure that the person who was speaking was not a hypocrite. That he was living his life according to what he said. And so the person would field questions and even accusations about his life. There's an early church writing at this time called the Didache, or the Teaching of the Twelve Apostles. It was dated to about 120 A.D. uh, And it says this, Not everyone that speaketh in the Spirit is a prophet, but only if he hold the ways of the Lord. Too far. Therefore, from their ways shall the false prophet and the prophet be known. The early church believed that someone's life affected one's message. If someone did not live according to what they taught, that person should not be listened to. Don't let them speak again. That's what they believed. All the churches at this time, except for Corinth, had this time of examination where they held people to account. We don't have this time of examination today because you know me. I live with you. I talk with you. You see me, and I'm the one who regularly speaks. We have some other people in the church that will come up and speak, and we have some people who come and fill the pulpit from time to time, but it's people that we know, and I know, and we've vetted, we know they're good, and that's why we allow them to come up and speak. We don't allow just anyone to speak because we care about the content and application of the message, and we care about the person who is speaking, that their life is lived in line with what they say. That is the context of the passage going on today, biblically and culturally. Order in a worship service, specifically this time of evaluation of those who are speaking. Now, Let's talk about the passage. In case if we've forgotten it, let's read it again. 1 Corinthians 14, 34 to 35. Women should remain silent in the churches. They're not allowed to speak, but must be in submission as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home, for it's disgraceful for women to speak in the church. Ha! Such a fun passage isn't it? I mean, you read it and your heart just starts doing leaps and bounds because it's so fun. Let's work through this. Woman says, Paul says, woman, you are to remain silent. You are not allowed to speak. We all agree it seems what he's saying, yes? According to the verses that are there, okay? According to the verses, all right, good. You all are very timid right now. Why are you so timid? This seemingly contradicts what Paul says earlier 
in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 5, Paul writes this, but every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It's the same as having her head shaved. And if that just brings up a whole nother list of questions for you, I preached on that several months ago. You can go look back on our archives. I spent a whole week on that passage. You can read it and figure out what it says. But the point I want to try to make is Paul is talking to women who are praying and prophesying in a worship service. He could have said, woman, why are you praying and prophesying in worship service? You're supposed to be quiet. But he doesn't say that. He says, woman, you're praying and prophesying worship service. Let's dress accordingly, is what he says. He doesn't tell them not to speak. So seemingly, there's a contradiction here. Paul in 1 Corinthians 11 has no problem with women speaking in worship service. 1 Corinthians 14, what's going on? I'm going to talk about Phoebe to you. This is not what she looked like, but this is the only picture I could find of her. The letter to Romans was entrusted by Paul to a gal by the name of Phoebe. We found this in Romans chapter 16, verse 1. At this time, whoever carried a letter to a church was expected to read that letter to the church. So Paul, Paul by giving Phoebe this letter, was expecting her to get up in front of the worship service during what we would consider the sermon time and read this letter in front of everyone in place of Paul. So Paul, through writing, Paul through practice, has no problem with women speaking in church. He doesn't. So why in the world in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 does he say, woman, be quiet in church. You're not allowed to speak. That's where the context comes in. The context is order and peace in a worship service, in a church service. That's the, that's the co greater context that's going on. The immediate context of what he's talking about right there in those, verse, those two verses there are couched right after he's talking about this evaluation of the prophets. Order and, work, order and peace in a worship service. You have this evaluation time of the prophets, and in that evaluation time of the prophets, woman, you're not allowed to speak. You're to remain quiet while everyone else is questioning and making evaluations. Why is this so? Why would Paul say that? Paul says this ambiguous term, because of the law, or for the law says. You're like, at this time, the law is shorthand for the first five books of the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, those ones. And so basically Paul's saying somewhere in there, it says this. Very broad. And you can, you can look through it all and see and wonder where in the world does Paul bring this up? Paul, whenever he talks about gender issues and every other place of his writings, he always goes back to creation, the beginning of the law and the order that God created at the beginning of time. 1 Corinthians 11, verses 11 to 12, that strange woman, make sure your head's covered while praying prophesying passage. In it, he says, nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as woman came from man, so also man is born of woman, but everything comes from God. He's talking about biologically, but he's also talking about at the very beginning, the woman came from man and the order that was there. First Timothy chapter 2, verses 12 to 13. I do not permit a woman to teach 
or to assume authority over man. She must be quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. God created an order at the beginning of time, an order that God expects his people to follow. Adam was created first. He was given the law, and he was given the responsibility to lead and to pass that law on to Eve. Eve was created next and was given the task not of leading, not of leading, definitely not leaving either, not of leading, but of helping Adam in his task and responsibility. The order that God created at the beginning of time has nothing to do with status or responsibility. Because under God, we are all have the same status, man and woman. Scripture clearly teaches that. And we all have the same responsibility under God, man and woman, to do what he has called us to do. The order that God established at the beginning of time has to do with function. So in 1 Corinthians 14, when Paul says, as the law says, he's talking about the function that God created in order, at the beginning of time, this order. And when he says that woman must be in submission, the wording, you're going to hate this even worse, the wording can also be translated, keep their ordered place. Keep their ordered place. Now, Paul's not using this in the frame of, woman, keep your place. Get back to the kitchen where you belong. It's not what he's talking about. They're to keep their place in the creation order. They're to be the person who comes to their husband and helps him. They're not the person who comes to their husband and browbeats their husband in public. They're to keep their ordered place by coming and helping and supporting as God has called them to do. So, think with me what would happen. This never happens. Hypothetical situation, okay? We're all good with that? All right. A husband and wife, they're on their way to church. The kids are playing nice and calmly in the back. And for some strange, odd reason... Uh, the, the husband and wife get into the nice, polite little argument in the front seat that turns from a nice, polite little argument to World War III. They enter church, and just for appearance's sake, they sit together, even though they don't want to. And lo and behold, it is the husband's time, their husband's day, to bring the message. He gets up there, and he brings the message. And she is sitting in her seat, stewing. She's thinking about all the reasons why her husband should not be speaking today. All the ways that he doesn't live, the way he is talking about. And look, he just took that verse out of context, and I know it, and I've been listening, and she starts creating all this list of all the things he's saying wrong. And do you know what? I'm going to keep that list going of all the things he did wrong yesterday. And he didn't pray with the kids last night, so how dare he be up here and speak for God? And then comes the time for examination, where he is sitting in his seat, and all the people are asking these questions, and what's going to happen during that time of evaluation? <laughs> She's going to take out her vertical shotgun and let him have it. And all that's going to be left is this blob of pulp on the back wall. That's not orderly. That's not peaceful. 
In fact, Paul says that that is disgraceful. So why do I think that's the situation to which Paul's referring to? Of course, there's everything I've said before this time. But Paul says very interestingly, he says in 1 Corinthians 14, 35, if this, this woman wants to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home. That inquire is the same word that is used of the high priest interrogating Jesus in Mark chapter 14, verses 60 to 61. Then the high priest stood up before them and asked Jesus, are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed one? Do you think the high priest was nice and polite with Jesus? Sitting demurely, saying, you know, excuse me, Jesus. I'm sorry to interrupt. I'm concerned that you might be a blasphemer. I'm sorry to trouble you with this, but could could you just answer my question? That's not what he was like. The word can be translated to accost one with an inquiry, to put a question to, to interrogate, to accuse. So when a woman is ticked with her husband, she has an avenue to, quote unquote, discuss the message with her husband, to discuss his life with him, but that avenue is not in the church service, Paul is saying. It's not, because that's not orderly, that's not peaceful, that is disgraceful, because it flips the order and function that God has called us to live, where the husband leads and the wife helps and supports, flips it on its head. Woman not speaking in evaluation time is a blanket statement. Paul's not saying, hey, woman, when you're angry with your husband, make sure not to speak. It's a blanket statement, because as Jesus said in his hometown, Nazareth, A prophet is not without honor except in his town, among his relatives, and in his home. Jesus himself was not received by his family, so why would we expect a sinner to be accepted all the time by his family? It doesn't happen. I know I'm perfect. It's okay. My wife always loves me. (laughs) We've looked at the context of what's going on in the passage. We've looked at the passage itself. Now, how do we apply it to our lives? How do we apply this passage? I'm certain that there were certain ladies in Corinth that were ticked about what Paul wrote. They had been lifted up in Corinthian society. Roman society said women are second-class citizens, but the Corinthian church, as well as all the churches of Jesus Christ at this time, said, no, women, you're in equal status with men under God equal in status. They were lifted up, and it was great. Now it seemed like Paul was shoving them down again. In fact, some might have declared, you know, Paul, you're, you're actually quenching the spirit at this time, because the spirit is leading me to speak out against my husband. Paul, don't quench the spirit. The people who prophesy can say what they want to. The people who speak in tongues can say what they want to. Why are you squishing me down? And don't I have the Christian liberty too, Paul? to say whatever I want to say. God's made me free. You're curbing my liberty, Paul. But the thing is, Christianity is about curbing our so-called liberty. We are not our own anymore. We've been bought with a price. We are slaves of Jesus Christ. Yes, we have freedom now. We do have Christian freedom, but that freedom is not to do whatever we want to do. 
That freedom is to do with act, that, to do what actually brings life, to glorify our creator through our choices and our actions. That's our freedom. Before, we weren't able to do that. But now we've been set free through Jesus Christ to do that every single day as we follow him. Peter writes this in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 16. Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Oh, too often, we as Christians, those who profess to be followers of Jesus Christ, say, I have the Christian freedom to do this, and it's something that's completely wrong. But we use our freedom as a cover-up for that evil. Paul has been exhorting the Corinthians since the beginning of the letter, saying we are called to be self-sacrificing. We are called to pursue peace and unity for the glory of God. And sometimes that peace and unity for the glory of God means biting our tongue. And more often than not, it means biting our tongue. Paul is not calling out specific women in the passage of 1 Corinthians 14. Ephesians chapter 5, 21 is written by Paul, where it says, submit to one another. He's talking men to women, back and forth. It's not just women to men, but it's men to women as well. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. The principle of submission is not gender specific. Paul's not pushing women down because they are so only required to bite their tongue. Everyone is supposed to. James writes this in James chapter 3, verse 6. The tongue is also a fire a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of one's life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. I love the imagery of that passage. But too often we don't think about what happens when we open up our mouth. We are called to pursue peace and unity for the glory of God. We are called to interact with one another in a way that shows everyone around us, in the church service, not in the church service, who God is. And sometimes interacting in that way means giving up something for the good of the whole. It means sitting quietly for a bit until the right time in private comes up. The Christian life is about sacrifice. It's about having the humility to admit, I am a sinful man, and if I go by my gut, I'm going to mess things up. So I'm going to, for the sake of peace and unity, for the sake of order, I'm going to take a beat. I'm going to pray and at the right time, I will speak to the person who I think is in the wrong. I'm going to try to influence him to make it right. Jesus said, if you have something against your brother, you're to go to him in private. And that means husband and wife too. And if that person doesn't hear you out, you then take a couple people with you. And then a couple more. And then finally bring it to the whole church. There's an order that's supposed to happen. A process for the sake of showing who God is. Paul says in the middle of the church service, that's not the time to do it. If I have something against my spouse, it's never good to air it in public. It's never good to air it in public. But to seek reconciliation with your spouse in private for the glory of God and for the good of the church. So we've looked at the context. We looked at the passage, we've looked at the application. It all comes back to order in a church service. Self-sacrificing for the unity of the whole. Watching our mouths so that God can be glorified through us. We are sinful people. Left to ourselves, 
apart from God, we will always mess it up. We always will. The amazing thing about our salvation is that when God tells us something hard like, watch your mouth, watch your mouth, he doesn't just leave us to do it on our own. He says, I will give you the strength to watch your mouth today. I'll give you the strength to be an encouragement today. I'll give you the strength not to tear down that person today. I'll give you the strength to follow him today. And he does that through the cross. It's one of the amazing gifts of our salvation. That when Jesus died on the cross for our sins, he didn't just take the penalty away. He didn't just declare us righteous and justified. He didn't just bring us in reconciliation with him, but through the cross, when we place our faith in Jesus Christ, he gives us his Holy Spirit who teaches us and reminds us of how we are to live and gives us the strength and encouragement to live how we are to live. So when we take communion together today, we're not just celebrating the fact that we are saved and we get to live forever with him. We're celebrating the fact that today we have the ability to live for him through our salvation. Paul writes about this celebration in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses, starting in verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So then whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ eat and drink judgment on themselves. We as Calvary Bible Church practice what's known as open communion which means that if you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you can celebrate communion with us, even if this is your first time with us or your one millionth time. These are the gifts of God for the people of God. So if you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, please celebrate it with us. But if you've never placed your faith in Jesus Christ, there's never been a moment in your life when you say, I realize I'm a sinner and I am separated from God forever and there's nothing I can do about that. I place my faith in you, Jesus Christ, alone to save me. Your death on the cross and my faith is in you alone, not in any works I've done, the churches I've attended, the rituals I've taken part in, the fact that my family is a believer. I place my faith in you alone, Jesus Christ. If you've never done that, I ask that you let the elements go by because these are the gifts of God for the people of God. By eating and drinking with us, you are declaring a lie. You are saying that you're a hypocrite. You're saying one thing and doing another. So don't do that. We're not doing this to judge you, but to keep you honest. But today, if you want to place your faith in Jesus Christ, I ask you to do it. To call on the name of the Lord and you will be saved. And may this act of communion be your first act as a believer. And come and let someone know what you have done. And we can explain more fully what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. We don't believe there's anything special in these elements. It's just bread and juice. That's it. It doesn't change into the body and blood of Jesus Christ. It doesn't make us saved by eating them. It's just something we do to remember. When we take the bread, we 
pass the plate and we each take a piece and we hold it and wait till everyone's served and we eat it together. When we take the cup, we pass the plate, we each take a cup and we hold it until everyone's served and we drink it together. We do this symbolizing that we want to be one. In John chapter 17, Jesus is praying right before he is uh, betrayed, right before he dies. And he prays to the Father, may those who believe in me be one, even as you and I are one. We as Calvary Bible Church want to be unified. We don't want to have anything between us and a fellow believer in Jesus Christ, which is one of the reasons why we take some time to pray before the communion service. We, we pray and we thank God for what he's done for us, his amazing gift. We pray and ask his forgiveness for sins that we've committed, knowing that it's done and paid for. And we pray and say, hey, Father, is there something between me and a fellow believer? Something that I need to make right? And if he shows us it, we'll then go that week and make it right with that believer. I'm grateful for the grace of God, as I say every week, because if we were honest, we couldn't take communion because all of us are sinful. I'm grateful for his grace that when we go off the path, he kicks us back and says, no, you know how you're to live. Live this way. No, you need to make that right with your brother and sister in Christ. Do it. Whether we go to the right or the left, he pushes us back. He pushes us back. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you for your grace that you look down on us sinful creatures wanting to have a relationship with us and doing what it took. Thank you for sending your son Jesus to, to live among us and to die for us that we might be redeemed, that we may be forgiven, justified, and ultimately one day glorified. We look forward to that day, but until that day comes, Lord, give us the grace and strength we need to live for you and to reflect your character with what we say and what we do to those around us. Teach us to be unified as your people. Not to allow barriers or walls to come up, but keep breaking them down for the sake of our witness in the community. Lord, may we be known as people who love you with all of our heart and who love each other as you have loved us. Teach us what that means. Make us yours. Thanks, Father. Amen. If I could ask Jean and Tim to come up and help. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The plastic cups have gluten-free wafers.
the body of our Lord Jesus Christ that was broken that we might stand redeemed, celebrating. Let us eat it together. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. blood of our Lord Jesus Christ that was spilled, that we might not only know him, but we might show him to the world around us. Celebrating, let us drink it together. If you could hold on to your cups, throw them away on the way out, and as David comes up to lead us in the last song, let us pray together. Father, thank you for being the God who didn't just save us and kick us out but being the God who is with us, guiding us, strengthening us, giving us peace, hope, giving us love, giving us encouragement and confidence. Thank you for being the God with us, that we are never alone, but each day as we wonder how we are to live today, you give us that ability. You teach us how. Lord, I ask 
that you would continue the work that you started in us, that we would be a people who reflect you, that we would not be content with our normal, ordinary, sinful lives, desires, and priorities, but we would be a people who yearn to reflect you. And thank you, Father, that one day you will finish that work in the day when you call us home. Take your hymnals and stand and